Okay, so for the next of the, uh, the Catapult High Performance Practitioner interviews, I'm delighted to be at the eminently impressive Manchester City uh, training facility. And I've got Grant Downey, MBE, uh, with me, who is the Head of Performance for Manchester City Academy. So thanks very much for agreeing to do this, Grant. Just to set the ball rolling, um, I mean, football's gone through huge changes over the past few years and probably Manchester City more so than any other club. And I'm guessing that the role of head of performance within the academy here carries with it huge responsibilities. And I wonder if you just start off by giving us a little bit of an overview of the role uh, and perhaps the philosophies that you carry that underpin the operation of the department. Okay, I was appointed, what, nearly five years ago to sort of come into a restructured sort of football club and look at the academy's operations from medical, from sports science, strength and conditioning, performance analysis, partly psychology too, and look at the direction we wanted to take uh, the academy. And I think one of the biggest things and one of the things that has always concerned me from a medical angle, people were always happy to talk about injury stats and were we the best at getting the lowest amount of injuries and that never really excited me because ultimately we wanted to come up with a philosophy that was about developing players and ultimately we wanted to leave our mark and really we came up with a mission statement which is almost to the words of in five years time we see City players playing globally that know how to look after mind, body and soul and we are proud of the football brand. So the brand of football is an exciting type of tacking football which requires athleticism but it also requires to be underpinned by resilience, uh, mental toughness and through that sort of player journey there will be injuries and we were going to be treating those injuries. So almost an injury would never be looked as a setback, but just an opportunity to get fitter, either stronger mentally, physically, or in any form of impact. So one of the first things we did in the first year when we got a couple of serious injuries in the knee injuries of a couple of the lads, we took a couple of our scholars to Ghana, where we've got a sort of a partnership with an academy, and we sort of used the opportunity to develop them in other areas. They were 19. They were going to be out for nine months and we thought it was an opportunity for them to go and teach in a local school, build a football pitch with wheelbarrows, uh, do their washing out of a bucket for a week, uh, given two lots of kit and a bar of soap. And so part of it was therefore not just to develop the player, but to develop the person. And I think in the world we're living in where there's you know, so much money being talked about in football, what we wanted to do is try and remember that the majority of the top class sportsmen are pretty humble people hungry people but hungry for success but appreciative of the sort of values that create that so as a performance lead it's to try and set up a department that values those aspects of a person and understands that when a person is going to be injured they will be pretty down their family may be down but we can support them but try and make them as independent as possible because we're very fortunate our owners have built a fantastic facility in Manchester but we have to be honest and probably say about 95, 99% of our players may never go on to our first team. But they yeah. may have asset value. We may be able to sell them to other clubs. But ultimately, I see another mission too that maybe one day one of those players will be doing my job and hopefully do it better than I can do it. By that means they have been through our system. They've been away to education. They've gone away and had part of their journey. But they'll come back here and have a real in-depth understanding of what it takes from all angles. So the performance team that I lead, I sit next to the technical director. We have a head of psychology now who sits that on that table and the head of operations and we record into the academy director. And basically we, we really want to judge our long-term success by yes, players who hopefully progress onto our first team to save the club money. 
but also understand that, you know, I had a great conversation a year ago with a coach from Walsall, where we, one of our young players, went there and he's playing there still and he's doing very well. And the, the nicest thing is the coach came up to me and said, that boy's a credit to your club. You know, he speaks to the, the ladies who do his washing, he speaks to the kitchen staff and he's a very humble young man. So those values are something that when you have players with you from the age of six, you can influence. You know, hence, you know, I have to organise medical and sports science cover for 24 international tournaments a year. Our under eights last year were in Florida. And part of the purpose of taking them on these journeys is to make them as independent people and as strong people that can cope with the demands of not only professional football, but I think the things outside it from the ridiculous media cover we get today from these boys are on Twitter, social media, I don't know all the names of Snapchat or Facebook, whatever they're all called, but everyone is on them and we've got to embrace them because they're part of society. So we shouldn't shy away from their value, but their exposure is the fact that they're, they're almost in the goldfish bowl 24-7, which is not always healthy. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, the philosophy that you're describing there is both refreshing and, and admirable. Um, but there's a part of me, uh, based on, you know, I've, I've worked a few years in football myself, that says surely then you know, um, we, we're talking about a journey, we're talking about long-term development and patience within that. Yet the players are also part of a, a games programme and they're coached by the technical coaches who by nature they're competitive beasts and the technical coaches will judge their own uh, capabilities and their own success on the outcome of games. So how, how do you actually compromise, I suppose, the way that the technical coaches might feel about the game and your more s sort of holistic approach? What, what our technical director has done is come in and they set up a methodology. And our aim, yes, is to, is to try and win every game, but by playing one way. We will not sacrifice the way we play to win. So therefore, you know, the methodology means a left back has to do certain things on the pitch, the right back, the number six will play a certain way. As long as we play that way, we aim to win every game. I think you and I are both wise enough to realise that actually we often learn more from our defeats and it's important we get op opposition for our boys that contest them because we are fortunate that the policy we have here, we can select some of the better players, uh, but we want challenges for them. So does that mean sometimes, you know, there's a big talk in the moment about the value of biobanding and I think biobanding has got its place, but also it's more to me about players playing up than down because I actually like the smaller sometimes players to play with the bigger players because it's a challenge but I also like the bigger more developed players to be pushed on so they get the relative challenge and I think you're spot on coaches by definition will, will sometimes look at the end of the season and say you know my under 15 team were undefeated is that successful I think it's part of our jobs to try and educate them and say well that's wonderful but what have they learned are they ready for the next stage and I think again ultimately you know, if we, for example, this year, let's say we are successful in the un under-18 league or the youth cop, and we're at the latter stages of both competition, in five years' time, no one really remembers that much. And, yeah. and I think it's important, you know, my job, as you rightfully said, is to try and, yes, praise the players when they do well to a point, but I don't think we should praise their technical ability. We should expect that. What we should be praising is their effort. And same with the coaches, and I think it's giving them as you say, the coaching staff, the relevant challenges, and it's nice if they come back at, say, over Easter, five teams away on international duty, and we, you know, if they come back and they've won a tournament when they're playing against Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, these are the real challenges, but what have we learned from these things? And I think, 
as you said yourself, I'm not worried about defeats because I think defeats, I think in life, they're one of the biggest drivers for success. And if we continually win till we're 19 and suddenly it becomes difficult, they'll fail. They'll fail. So we've got the situation here and yeah, I am in awe of what uh, the owners have tried to build here in Manchester City because I can see quite clearly that there's an awful lot more to this than football. And as you say, um, if the end goal is to bring through players that will ultimately play for Manchester City's first team, then I'm not saying that uh, those that don't are failures, but uh, you're obviously trying to produce an end destination for those. Realistically, what would you see as a, a satisfactory end destination then for players coming through? Certainly, we want to get some in the first team, so we shouldn't, you know, and we've been set KPIs from our board, which, you know, we have to sort of try and aspire to achieve, and they're quite tough, but they're in the next number of years, we expect a number of our players to be in the first team squad. But again, I think the other thing is asset value. So if we, you know, in the last four years, I think we've made between 20 and 25 million on selling players from the academy system. We sold one last year for 12 million pounds. Uh, so that in itself brings back money into the academy. Uh, and I think it's, it's a balancing act. We also, within the City Football Group, you know, have other clubs. There's a club in, in New York we have you know, a big ownership in. We have one in Melbourne and a Leicester sake at Yokohama. Uh, and we will have players probably playing there eventually too. So yeah. there's much more scope than just Manchester City. And as I said to you, because if you think about, you know, the owners rightfully have invested in this club for the long term, which means they're desperately keen to win the Champions League. And who can't blame them with the investment they've made? but there are very few clubs who've aspired to produce homegrown players. So it's a fantastic challenge. And I think, you know, it's the old favorite thing. If you want to really do something you've never done before, you'll have to do something you've never done. So we are aspiring to try and achieve that. And I think the advantage of that is compared to some clubs, which are very traditional, they're limited by what they've done in the past because they've never done it that way. There's never been a Manchester City way. That's got as advantages because that means our owners will allow us to try things which we'll probably get wrong. Sure, sure. You mentioned um, previously about the fact that you have a responsibility for, for young players from, from the age of six, which I think a lot of people will find both worrying um, and we'll, we'll see it as challenging. Uh, and I think there's a lot of criticism, possibly quite rightly, being thrown at football for having people specialise at much, much too early an age. Do you accept that uh, as a point of criticism? And if so, what would Man City or what would a Manchester City trying to do to overcome the issues that might be associated with early specialisation? I, I think listen, it's a very fair point, and I think anyone who thinks from the age of six you should just play football to be a successful long-term professional football athlete is a dangerous thing. We we certainly don't specialise that early. We have them in regularly from that age, but we are fortunate. We, from 11 to 16, select a number of players to put into private education, which means we have got them on day release, but they don't play football every day. We have an alternative sports syllabus, so our boys every week will do activities from boxing, from wrestling, to canoeing. We do the Duke of Edinburgh bronze award system. Our under-16s this year will do the silver. We can't take them to the gold just because of the way the, the scholarship system runs, but we do believe in doing other activities, you know, because we, we, are, we want them to develop as young people who can three-dimensionally move and I don't want them to get to 16 and hate football because there is a danger as you rightfully yeah. said if we specialize that and i i actually worry these days with our young children not of overload of actually underload but under yeah. but a sort of the the sort of underload is doing too much of one sport and not enough of other activities so 
one of the things we're doing with our scholars when they leave this summer from the sort of 12 to 16 is we're getting them to enrol in local basketball clubs, volleyball clubs, play tennis, go and play golf, go and play cricket, go and have some fun. And we, right. and we want activities. So, you know, we, we, have, a, we have built uh, this training ground in an adventure play park. We've got just out the back there an adventure play park that our 11s, or sorry, our 9s to 12s go on three times a week. And, it's, and we call it creating chaos where we just set up obstacles and they've got to get around them and they think of a far better way than I can. And sometimes if you were to see it, it is totally unstructured mayhem. But that's what it's meant to be. And it's meant to, for them to hopefully, we've encompassed, we've worked with what we call city tough characteristics, which are the characteristics we think mentally are important to create footballers. And some of these are about the head, so they're about um, thinking logically. Some of them are about the heart, so it's the love of activity. And some of them are about stomach, so it's guts. And a lot of the activities for the younger groups are all just about love and all about, you know, finding adventure. Can you swing across the bars? Can you, how can you get there? How can you do it with hoops? So again, looking at different aspects of, of what engages young people to have physical fun. So just if, if, if we can move on from there and, and rather than focusing on the, on the players and the development of the kids, but just focus on yourself for a little period of time because your own journey within professional sport, I think, has been really, really interesting. In particular, the decision that you made about five years ago mm -hmm. to move away from the, the senior position that you held within uh, football and actually not take a step down but move into a totally different arena which is that of youth development. And I'm interested in your motivations for that and what you saw as, uh, if you like, the advantages almost in moving in that direction. I think that's a really interesting question and I probably had spent, what, about 24 years in, in senior football and I think like anything, you know, you, some people say you get less for murder, but you, 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 I, I must be, most of that I'd thoroughly enjoyed, but I was tired. Because I think you do get tired working season, season out. And a very good friend of mine and yours, Dave Parnaby, had said to me at the time, there's a job going at Manchester City, you know, and, it, and, and they're looking for someone to run their medical department. Is this something you think would interest you? And at the time I'd said, I don't know. He said, apply for it because you never know. And I really went for this role, not knowing would I like it or not. Uh, but actually, and also I thought, well, actually, I've spent a fair bit of time at senior football. I often enjoy dealing with academy young players because I never liked the fact that there was people at senior level who had more experience than the academy staff. Because by definition, academy staff come in and want to work at senior football and they see their way into it. I probably thought that was a good thing until I started working at it and realised this is a speciality in its own. And I do genuinely believe that. I was quite well prepared for the job in one aspect, which was meant I knew what the final product looked like, but I was nowhere near prepared of what the psychology, the persuasion skills you've got to use to get players to understand of what they need to be doing. So it was really probably my lack of understanding of this environment, but I must say I've thoroughly enjoyed it because I think, you know, you, I probably could see where 11-year-old players were going wrong and yeah. you could see it wrong from a physical angle and a mental angle, and you can do something about it. And, you know, we've got some fantastic young kids here who, are, who you can influence. And I found, again, I work like yourself, I work with some very good senior players who at 34 you could influence. But we also work with some 22-year-old players yeah. who are very fixed in their mindset. And I think that was partly because they were not educated into what was going to happen to them. And as I said to you, I've, you know, this is a different type of role. But I must say, I, I, would I go back to first-team football? I don't feel a need to. I don't feel as if this is a stepping stone. If I was to spend the rest of my career 
at this level, I would love it. And, and I must say, I, I come to work and it's a privilege to think that, you know, I get up at sort of half past five, six in the morning and I'm quite excited about coming to work and I don't, I don't worry about when I'm off and it's, maybe it's just this environment, but I think it's the fact when you see young people who've got so much ability to, to evolve and develop that, you know, I find it very exciting. So take this down to, I mean, obviously there are an awful lot of staff in this environment that you have responsibility for, and with respect, I think they're probably all younger than you are, certainly, <laughs> certainly than me, a lot. Um, and I'm guessing that the vast majority of them still would aspire to work at the senior level. Is there any possibility that the whole sort of philosophy, I'm not saying will get turned on its head, but that people might begin to view uh, being a specialist or an expert in paediatric physiotherapy, paediatric sports science would be a goal in itself. I think the tide is changing and I think one of the hardest things for some young aspiring people, first team football is a certain glamour. Uh, once you've worked there for a while you realise it's not as glamour as people think it is. But also it financially rewards people better. So for some reason some people rightfully will want to move for that. I think, again, I'm very fortunate to work for a club that part of my development in this club was after a year I presented a business plan to the board of how I wanted to improve and part of that was I wanted to attract some people who wanted to stay here. Now, being honest, you've got to reward them. Yeah. You know, they're not going yeah. to just stay just for any simple reason. So therefore, we now have a different business model where we have staff who are working in the academy system who are almost as well remunerated as some of the senior first team staff, which means they can see a future career here. We have a structure, you know, we have a development plan, we have a good CDP plan where every single member of the performance team this year has been given permission to me to go and see either a national or international uh, different centre of excellence and report back to a study visit. So reward doesn't just come by what you get paid, it becomes how you can look after staff, how you can develop them as people and the club here have been tr tremendous. I can't compliment them enough of how, how backing they are of that type of project. And I I do think it's good to have staff to change anyway. I don't want staff here for the next 10 years. I don't think that's healthy either because people get stagnant. But, you know, we recently, we took a, a start at the same time with me, a head of sports science, strength and conditioning, who now has moved on and gone to work in a first team for a while. He's doing very well and I know soon we'll probably be leading not just science uh, and S&C, probably medicine too in that club, you know. And that's, that's good yeah. for everyone who's worked here. And, and quite a lot of the staff, of course, that you're bringing in, um, and not coming through what an awful lot of clubs would see as the traditional route, which is through football. So you employ people because Absolutely. they've got some experience in football. I mean, you're bringing them in from the English Institute of Sport, from rugby, yeah. experience in cycling. What, what sort of benefits do you derive from that? I think, again, football has traditionally been an industry that surrounds itself by people who've worked in football. And, and, and that, you could argue, means they know a lot about football. But I think for football to progress, like any industry, it's got to look into other aspects. And I've always been a great believer in the study visits. I've, very, I've probably visited two football clubs, but 20 national institutions of, of from rugby to Royal Marley recently and seeing different things. And I think it's always worth having your staff. So, for example, our head of physiotherapy uh, in the academy system spent 10 years with the first team at Yorkshire Cricket and a year and a half with Scottish Rugby before he came here. Yeah. Uh, the head of sports science, which is just a new appointment recently, he has not worked in football, but as you say, worked in cycling, disability sports, swimming, uh, EIS. And I think that's a great background because that adds to the portfolio 
you know, of staff, and so it means we've got experts who can treat upper limb injuries. You know, if you ask me as a physio who's been in football as long as I have, if I get a shoulder injury, I don't know what to do. Sure, sure. And so building upon that a little bit, I think one of the most admirable moves that's been made at Man City is actually to bring the ladies' team Absolutely. into the same environment as the men's. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I'm interested to see. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that that brings an awful yeah, lot that most of the people won't we, see. We, we, we decided when the women's team was coming on, if we were to offer them a duty of care, it must be the same. And and from that point of view, from the point of view, do we go for full-time staff? And the answer is yes. We have a full-time physio, full-time SNC. They share the medical clinics with the academy from a doctor perspective. They have psychology support, so they have a psychologist two days a month. Uh, they have a performance analysis staff and they then sit as we call it as part of the foreman's family. Uh, they work out of the same facility so therefore if the physio who works with them who's got a, a fair amount of experience wants a second opinion the head of the physiotherapist will see them. If he's not sure I will have a look at them and we have the same referral pathways. We, we again have looked at the football methodology which was developed for the men and we haven't quite completely applied it to the women because they're slightly different type of athletes. So therefore, but we are trying to build our own methodology, and I think everyone has realised the biggest area to improve in women's football is by making the ladies full time. They will get physically fitter, and so there is a big emphasis on on the physicality side. And I think it's refreshing for a young scholar who's probably already maybe being paid more than one of the lady players to hear of an international who's got 107 caps, who tells him at three years ago was living in the northeast but travelled two nights a week to play at Everton and slept on someone's sofa in between training to help her to go to work. Yeah. And when you get those stories, it's nice to ground people. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things that's come across in the past 20, 25 minutes, um, loud and clear, is the human component of the journey and the academy um, at Man City. Um, but anybody walking around this place would probably uh, they can't fail to see that if, if you were to define state of the art mm -hmm. then this is it. So you have pretty much every toy, every gizmo, every gadget that anybody could possibly hope to need. Um, so that's where we've got to in terms of the journey over the last 15 years. What I'd like you to do just in closing really is to uh, if you like look in your crystal ball and give me an insight into where you think this game is heading. So in five years' time, you know, what will have changed? What will, what will have come on the scene that's new? Great question. And I think, I think it's funny, isn't it? Because when I first started my journey, physios were the best things in the world. Rightfully now, they're not. Then I think we went through a, a, a sort of vintage of where S&C and sports science became. And then it's now calming down a level. I think the, the science... We, that's why we call it human science when we talk about psychology, because psychology is a little bit woolly as we, if we just define it as psychology. But there is a science behind people, and I think none of us have really tapped into that. I think the physiological parameters are maxed out to a point. I think we're learning to measure them with things like GPS very well. Do we really understand what load is? No, I don't think we do yet, because I think it's so individual. But this research is happening, and it's great, and we need it. But I think, for me, the key is a bit of understanding people and what, what suddenly makes someone work harder in an environment. And so the psychology is not just about the person, but it's building an organisation psychology model which therefore, sort of, for want of a better word, excites genes in people to be switched on to suddenly make them resilient and want to work. Because there's a danger this environment could do the opposite. 
it could make people think they've arrived. So how do we still make it aspirational that this is just the beginning? And so I, I see more research. We've got a, a new sports institute literally 400 yards away, which we're, again, very privileged our owners have set up. And we are, you know, we are looking at some different PhD projects in the next two or three years. But I think what we've got to do is be brave and really let them run for six years and not make some silly predictions. And you and I know we live in a world of where there's a lot of very good science, there's a lot of pseudoscience, and I hope we can differentiate it between you know, what makes a difference. And it was interesting because we, you know, just probably to end it nicely, we've just sent two or three of our teams away on, on, on tours abroad. And we've decided for the first time to try some mood questionnaires with our younger players because we want them to get into the, after, after every day's training at breakfast, and we've just done a five smiley face from a, a crying face to a big smiley face. But rather than just get the physios to undertake these, each of the groups, or one of the groups in particular, is taking one of the injured players who can't play but we're getting him to understand the importance of looking at how someone feels after performance. And I think the more we can understand, you know, about readiness to train and, as there's a, and, and backing it up with good science, but never forgetting to look someone in the eye and shake them by the hand, will tell us a lot about someone's readiness to perform as well as using all the data. But I hope the data can get better but I hope we never lose the ability to, to also understand that sometimes you must play with pain. You know, you're very rarely going to win a major championship without an injury. It's not going to happen. And I worry sometimes, I heard it on the radio the other day, that a player had left the field of play because his calf was tight. Now, if that player can train into playing two days, I'm concerned. Yeah, sure. Maybe, sure. maybe that's where we've over-medicalised and over-scientifically monitored players because we're making them too aware of every little nick in their body. And you know, if you're going to play 500 professional games, 450 have to be with some pain. Interesting stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Grant, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate you inviting us in here. And uh, yeah, My pleasure. thank you. Cheers.